Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Uh, Join me, if you would, on the journey. We're going to read Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 first. And what we're going to see is this very remarkable test of loyalty that Abraham gets. Here's what it says, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting, listen to this, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So what's happening is Abraham, if you don't know the story, he's a pagan man from a pagan family. God comes to him, not because he's good or clean, uh, but just says, I want you, and I want to I use you, I want to choose you, I want to I make a family out of you. So uh, Abraham, he obeys God, and he has faith. And God comes to Abraham and says, I have promises for you. I'm going to give you a child, and through that child, there's going to be many more children. You'll have descendants that are innumerable. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. He begins to tell Abraham that he has a land prepared for him, and he makes them all these promises. Abraham and Sarah, throughout the course of their journey, get a little off kilter. They begin to question God. They begin to doubt God. They begin to come up with their own you know, concoctions to try to make these promises come to fruition. At one point in time, uh, Sarah comes to Abraham and is like, I don't know if this is happening. We haven't had a kid. Maybe we should get like a girlfriend or something. And Abraham volunteers his tribute. He's like, you know, whatever the family needs, you know. And, and there's this mess that unfolds. And they, they begin to doubt God. And God comes back to them and says, no, I have, I have a plan for you. And he says, I have a child for you that's going to come. And we're old, you know, this isn't going to happen. They're 90 and 100 when Isaac is born. And you fast forward a few years and your Isaac is maybe 20 years old-ish. Abraham's 120 and God says, that son that I promised to you, that everything would come through, go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham leaves the next morning. He leaves with some servants and they go to Mount Moriah and they, he tells the servants, hey, wait here, we're going up, we'll come back. And he goes to offer Abraham as a sacrifice. And many times preachers will present Abraham as he's really wrestling. You know, he's wrestling with the, the duty that God calls him. He has to be obedient, but he loves his son. And he does love his son. But really the wrestle in Abraham's heart, as the scriptures would present it to us, is this wrestle of how is God going to fulfill his promises? If, if my son is, is killed, how is he going to fulfill his promises? And Abraham is so sure of the promises of God that he accounts, it says, he, he figures that the way this would happen, God's going to raise him from the dead. It doesn't go through, it doesn't actually sacrifice his son, if you know the story, but he accounts that if this is going to go through, I am so locked and loaded on the Lord and on his promises that the only thing I can think of is that God is going to raise him up. He'll resuscitate him and he will not remain dead. It's the first time that you see resurrection presented to us in the scriptures, that Abraham accounts that God's so big and so strong and so powerful and his faith is so sturdy in God that he believes that God can raise him from the dead. But then if you keep tracking through Hebrews 11, you find 
that you're introduced to these very memorable facts of history. So you would find in verses 32 through 38, I want to read it with you together. I know it's a a few verses, so hang with me. But you read this in Hebrews 11, verse number 32. What shall I say more? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David also and Samuel and the prophets and just begins to list out and spill out all these people of faith. It says, here's what they did. Through faith, they subdued kingdoms. They wrought righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. They waxed valiant in fight. They turned to flight the armies of the foreigners or the aliens. And women even received their dead raised to life again. And others, they were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. What you find in that passage is two instances where you're told resurrection, resurrection. One is at the beginning of verse number 35 where it says that women receive their dead back. If you, if you followed what I just read to you, you would have picked up pretty intuitively that there's basically two lists in that passage. Verses 32 through 35 is this list of people that they, uh, they conquered. They subdued kingdoms. They were on the bottom and they got to the top. They flexed their muscles, and God worked on their behalf. And there were supernatural things that happened. There were miracles. The mouths of lions were stopped, and it ends the culmination of that list of all of these great things that happened by faith is that these women received their dead back. It's talking about two women in the Old Testament, one that was under the ministry of Elijah and one under the ministry of Elisha that receive back their dead. The, the prophets come along and there's faith and they're, and they're raised back. The boys come back to life. But the passage doesn't end in verse number 35, right? The passage keeps going and it tells you that there's others. Like others that had faith, others that believe God, others that love God. But they, it didn't shake out that way for them. They were destitute, they were afflicted, they were tortured. They did not receive the dead back. They were wandering around with nothing, tormented even. And it's not that they didn't have faith, and there's a great lesson there. If, if your idea of faith is, I believe God so everything goes well, then you miss it. You're doomed for a failure if that's the case, because... Life just will not, uh, it won't work with you on that. You can make your little designer life and you can hope and pray for it and you can even have faith in God, but it doesn't always go according to plan. Have you learned that? Verse 35, the beginning, so the women receive their dead. The second part of verse number 35 says, others were tortured, they did not accept deliverance. What does that mean? We'll explain it in a minute. That they might obtain, and listen to this, a better resurrection. Now, what does that mean? How was it a better resurrection? Like, was, was the resurrection that the women did receive previously, was that fool's gold? Like, was that lame? Like, it sounds pretty awesome to me. It's miraculous. Like, your, your, your boy came back to life. That sounds fantastic. 
How is it a better resurrection? And the answer is that those women under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha had received their dead back. Even Abraham, figuratively speaking, had received Isaac back from the dead. But they were raised still to a mortal body that was still subject to sin and disease and death and decay. And while those boys came back to life, they died again, right? And a couple generations after these women received their boys back, quite a bit after Abraham and Isaac, the prophets of God began to step onto the scene and they began to predict that there was a resurrection that would come and that Abraham and Isaac had typified this in a way and that the women that had received their boys back had, had shown this in a way, but there was going to come at the end of time, at the end of the ages, this moment where God would resurrect all of his people back, but he would not resuscitate them into a mortal body, but he actually would raise them to immortal life and that eternity with God would be not an ethereal, immaterial, float around in the sky, Casper the ghost experience, but it would be in a resurrected body that was no longer subject to sin or subject to death or subject to decay, and it would be the death of death. You say, that sound, I, don't, I don't know that I've heard much like this. It's, it's all through the scriptures. Daniel would talk about all of these end times. Daniel looks way into the future with the Lord. And he gets really to the end of his writings, and he says, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth, they'll awake. Some will be to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And Daniel paints the picture of a resurrection, really, of everybody at the end of time. And God says, you are with me, everlasting life, and you are not to eternal damnation. And he separates it all out at the end of time. If you remember, if you've been around church or maybe Sunday school, you probably would recall uh, the story of Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. There's even quite a few songs written about that where these bones receive life and all of a sudden flesh comes on them and they're raised up. Over and over again, this begins to be taught and it becomes a cardinal doctrine of Judaism that God will raise up his own at the end to life everlasting. You, I could give you so many examples of this, but it's, it's, it's there it becomes this doctrine that the Bible teaches that one day, not figuratively speaking like Isaac comes back. Some of you would be there where we almost lost him or we almost lost her. There will be a day when death will be gone. And God will do this. And this is what the author of Hebrews has in mind. Back to Hebrews 11. When he says that there were some that were tortured, and they did not accept deliverance, but they believed in a better resurrection. And what, he, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's referring to an old classic Hebrew story that is a true story that is written in, in the Hebrew history books, the book of 2 Maccabees. And he refers back to the story, and here's the cliff note version of it. I won't give you the whole thing, but the cliff note version is Antiochus Epiphanes, this pagan king who is as cruel a king as you'll ever read about in all of history is just demented. He named himself Epiphanes because that literally means like I'm divine. That's what Epiphanes means. And he tortured people who would not believe in him or would believe in Judaism. He, I mean, he absolutely tortured them. And on one occasion, he got a widow and her seven sons. She had seven sons. And he brought them in and he said, renounce your faith, recant, and I will deliver you and I will spare your life. And they would not accept deliverance and they would not recant. He said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to take your boys. Mom, tell them to recant. I'm going to take your boys one by one. And first, and this is gruesome, so I, I apologize, but it's what it is. 
I'm going to cut out their tongue. Then I'm going to pluck out their eyes. Then I'm going to cut their hands off. And if that don't work, then I'm going to cut their feet off. Then I'm going to scalp them. And if they still don't recant, I'm going to burn them alive because they're still going to be alive. And one by one, that process happened boy after boy after boy. And if you read in 2 Maccabees, you can Google it and you can read it this week. I want to read you the quote that the mother and the boys began to tell each other when they were put on this trial and they were threatened. They began to tell each other, I'm trying to find it here somewhere, that they should not recant, that he was a brute beast, quote, brute beast, and that God would raise them up one day. And what they said and what the mom said to the boys was, boys, don't flinch. You're going to get those eyes back one day. You're going to get those hands back one day. You're going to get those feet back one day. Boys, there is a resurrection that's coming. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there became this, this doctrine, this piece of theology that began to inform the people of God, and it began to allow them to live in a way or even die in a way that was different than they could have been able to because they believed that a resurrection was coming, right? And it begins to unfold further through the pages of Scripture. And then you get to us. Then you get to Jesus, and this is where he ends Hebrews 11 in verses 39 and 40. And he says these words. These all, all these people, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. What promise? Well, namely the promise of a resurrection that was going to be theirs. They hadn't received it yet. It's still in the future. It's still coming. Verse 40, this is amazing. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not, be, uh, should not be made perfect. And what you begin to see is the resurrection now becomes this invaluable part of Christianity. And what the author of Hebrews says, he has the audacity to say that what they had, faith that God could do miraculous and raise people, stories that God had raised people, theology that God would raise them at the, at the end, they had all that, and so do we, but, we have something better. God has provided something better for us. And this is so that they, the people that have already died, they will not be made perfect or be made mature or be resurrected to their bodies without us. That one day we will join them. But in the meantime, what he says is that Christianity has something better. What's better? There was a man who was crucified and he was buried and he was in the grave and he rose, but he wasn't just resuscitated so that he would die again, but he was raised, Jesus, to life immortal. And while he had a body, it was glorified, it was better, and he is still today in that body in heaven. That's the argument of Christian theology, is that while they had great resources, we have better resources, because we've seen a resurrection like that. And I know that you weren't there and you weren't one of the hundreds of witnesses that saw Jesus. I get that. But you have their writings. You have their teachings. You have tons of evidence to say that happened. Let me, let me apply this for a minute. If this is true, then this should begin to represent itself and manifest itself in our life. I think there's something for living. There's something for dying. And there's something for believing. So for living, take Abraham. Undoubtedly, 
Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham had faith as big as the promises of God. God said it's through Isaac, but he's also going to die. And Abraham had so much faith in God's promises, he said, he's going to be raised again. That's bold faith. That's confidence. Abraham's faith propelled him into sturdy living, right? And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that Abraham wasn't like, you know, super spiritual man. It's not like his spiritual cape flapped in the wind and he had some sort of DNA that just made him special spiritual. He's trying to say that we have even better resources than that. And if his faith propelled him into sturdy living, how much more should our faith propel us into sturdy Christian living? That we shouldn't walk around on eggshells and stand on jello, but we should be able to stand with confidence and faith in the promises of God. And if Abraham was guilty of a lot of things, and he was, Abraham's life was a mess at many points in time, he was never guilty of small thinking or safe living because he trusted God. And what he's saying is, should we be guilty of small thinking? Should we be guilty of safe living? And just ask yourself, and this is, this is what irks me sometimes, in my own life, but also just in, in looking at Christianity in America. I know a lot of Christians that don't live a sturdy life. I'm not talking about a perfect life, but a sturdy, steady life. I know a lot of churches that are like, woe is us, I don't know if God can do anything, like the sky is falling all the time. And I'm not saying there aren't terrible things happening in the world, but shouldn't there be something inside of us? Shouldn't there be something inside of a church, and I think there is in this church, where you say, God is big, God is strong, God has given us promises, we can trust him, we can rest in him, we can live with that, right? What the resurrection says is that's going to happen one day. Jesus raising from the dead was proof positive that what God had promised was going to happen one day. And I know that, that that's an unusual teaching. Like there's, that's, that's not taught in, in a whole bunch of religions. But what God said and he promised that resurrection is true. What that means is that if you know him, you have a relationship with him, that you'll look back 10,000 years from now at today. You'll look back 10,000 years from now when you're ruling and reigning with Jesus in a glorified body. I, I don't know exactly how all that glorified body stuff's going to work. I'm anticipating maybe some golden six-pack abs or something. You know, it's, it's not in the Bible. It's, you know, I've made that up. But you'll look back and you'll say, man, that was, today was so trivial. And I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize today. I know that there's burdens. I know that there's, there's pains. I know that there's sorrow. I know that that's real. But if you have a resurrection perspective, all of a sudden, those trials lose a little bit of their punch. Not all of it, but they lose a little bit of their punch. All of a sudden, it's not that bad anymore. All of a sudden, there's a perspective that you zoom out. Why? Because of the resurrection. This has to, it has to give us something for dying. I mean, that's what the text said, right? Verse 35 was all about these Boys and their mother, they were willing to face down death because they had hope in a better resurrection. And that better resurrection, we have something even better because of Jesus. So what, what is it saying? I mean, it's plain. The resurrection and the reality of it, that Jesus rose, we celebrate it, sure. It's theology, sure. But it should help us with death. I know death is an uncomfortable topic. 
I'm well aware that our society is increasingly secular, right? And with the secular mindset has come a whole lot of, some of you undoubtedly have heard this, maybe some of you even think this right now. You know, death is just a natural part of life. It's the last step, right? I'm just dust to dust. It's a natural part of life. And when you hear that, you know deep down that is a cosmetic statement that does not ring true with reality. If death is a natural part of life, why does death cause us so much anger and so much sorrow? It's not. Death is presented in the Bible as an enemy, as something that is not natural, something that is not what we should want or just assume is okay. But how do you face death? How do you, how do you approach death? How do you have confidence to not be messed up by death or the death of a, of a loved one even sometimes? Well, the resurrection is the, probably the penultimate answer for that. Jesus rose. If I put my faith in him, I will raise as well. I will be with him. And that gives us hope, right? If you're above the age of 30, you will get this. This thing right here, this body, as, as blessed as we are and as, as unbelievable as bodies are, I mean, they're, it's a work of God. Right now, this body is corruptible. And when you're seven or eight, yes, you are still subject to sin or, or disease or, or, you know, cancer. Those things happen. When you're seven or eight, you don't really realize that. I mean, you're still, you're still trending in the right direction. But once you hit about 30, you start to trend. I mean, you plateau for a minute, but then you start to drop off, right? That's why Paul talks about when we die, that we die corruptible. We, we are sown in dishonor even. What is, what is he saying? Nobody dies pretty. Nobody dies pretty. You can die with faith, and that's, that's prettier than not faith, but it's still ugly. You lose dignity as this body begins to betray you, and your mind begins to go, and the eyes begin to dim, and the hearing begins to fade, and it stops working the way that it is. There's, there's a lot of dignity, that, and some of you know what this is like. You've, you've seen your parents go through this, and the struggle that that is. It's not, it's not pretty. We know it. We know this. How do you face that? How do you, get, how do you be okay with that? The same way that that mother and her seven boys were okay with it. A resurrection. You look and you say, I know the eyes are dimming. But I'm going to get those eyes back. I know the hearing is fading, but I'm going to get those ears back. That's how you face it. Why? Because you're just telling yourself stories so you can feel good? No, it's true. There's a resurrection that's coming, and it helps you face death. But there's also something for believing, and I'm done. Jesus made a lot of bold claims. I would dare say audacious claims. Jesus said that he was God, come in the flesh. Jesus said that that resurrection you heard about, that's me. I'm the resurrection. Okay, if you say that, you're lying or you're crazy or like you're God. There are not very many options. He didn't, Jesus just didn't spin some, some homespun wisdom and philosophy a little bit. People think that, but you haven't read what Jesus said if you think that. Jesus said, hey, heaven, yeah, it's real. And if you want to get there, 
completely through me, 100%. Heaven is a closed door, and I'm going to be on the inside, and I'll let you in if you know me. But if you don't know me, ain't coming in. It's all through me. He said some bold stuff. He said that he would die for sins, and he would be a ransom for our sins. And that if someone put their faith in him, that he would take away those sins and let them into heaven. How do you know that all that stuff's true? There's been a lot of people through history that said some crazy stuff, right? He wouldn't be the first person to have a Messiah complex. How do you know that's true? The number one way that Christians have always said we know that's true is Jesus rose. It is the linchpin of Christianity. Everything hinges on did Jesus raise from the dead. The Apostle Paul went so far as to say, if he didn't raise, it's trash, it's garbage, everything we have is in vain. It doesn't amount to anything. Actually, it's bad. It's lies. Who cares if it helps you in your life a little bit? It's lies. Throw it out. But if he did raise, if he didn't, don't pay attention to him. If he did, pay attention to everything he said. The reality of a resurrection means that we should be able to have more confidence that Jesus rose from the dead and and have an easier time believing than those that have even come before us. That we should have more faith, more confidence, that we should believe. So the million-dollar question I know for many of you is, did he raise? Some of you, you've already answered that question in your minds. You believed on Jesus. You believed that he died for your sins. You believed that he rose from the dead. But I am not naive enough to think that that's the whole room. I know it's Easter. I've met a bunch of you that are here with family, here with mom, here visiting from out of town, whatever. And I don't know your stories, but I know for sure that there'd have to be a few of you at least. This is the price I got to pay to get lunch today. (laughs) I'll let them sing their songs, and it'll be pretty, but I'll let them sing their songs. I'll listen to the sermon. Okay, I believed in Santa Claus too for a while. All right. I know that's in the room. Listen, I don't have time this morning to give you all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and there is a lot, the best of which is 400 witnesses. But he rose. I'll just leave it at that. Jesus literally, bodily, actually, supernaturally canceled his funeral, got up out of that grave, and walked out in a glorified body. And he says, if you believe in me, that's yours. Heaven's yours. A resurrection is yours. Put your faith and your trust in me, and I will take care of you. I will save you. This is why Romans could say, last verse, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you'll believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He will save you. And if you've never been saved, saved from what? Saved from your sins. If you've never been saved, I pray that today you'll confess him as Lord and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he did. Hey, this is Pastor Mark again, and I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that the message both challenged and encouraged you from the Word of God. Maybe you're listening for the first time. I want you to know that we believe the most important decision you'll ever make is the decision to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. To find out more about that, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash gospel. If you live in one of the four counties that are church borders, Allegheny, Westmoreland, Armstrong, Butler, and you don't have a church home, then we would invite you to come and to worship with us and join in the gospel work that God is doing here at Harvest Baptist Church. 
Maybe you're a regular listener and God's laying it on your heart to support the ministry and the outreach of Harvest. Your gift would help us reach more people more effectively with the gospel message. If you'd like to partner with us for ministry in Western Pennsylvania and around the world, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash give. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.